say to you four score and seven years ago, then you know that that is from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. First words in the Bible are important as well. Uh, in the beginning, God. Those are the first words of Scripture. And they are important words. And many times, books and chapters of the Bible begin with important words that have great significance. And we come to two words here in verse 21 of chapter 3 that are extremely important. They're not only important, they are inspirational. They ought to grab you and uh, make you rejoice. Uh, they ought to uh, bring joy into your heart. Great joy. For two and a half chapters of Romans, we've been looking at the sad story of the ruin of the human race because of sin. And now we reach a new and glorious point in Paul's letter. Instead of reviewing the grim story of man's sin and God's wrath, we turn with relief to the wonderful news of God's great grace to sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding the Bible in no small measure depends on uh, main words, words like justification, redemption, propitiation, faith, substitution, obedience, grace, many, many others. No one can really claim to have an understanding of Scripture unless they know something about these important terms. But it is also the case that understanding the Bible sometimes depends upon understanding and seeing words that we do not think are of such great importance. I think of the little word so, for instance, in John 3.16, because John did not say just that God loved the world. He said, for God so loved the world. There is a depth of profound theological importance in that word so. To answer what that word means, we have to go deep into the meaning of this uh, very popular verse of Scripture. These two words at the beginning of Romans 3.21 are like the so. But now. What tremendous words they are. One expositor calls them the great turning point in God's dealings with the human race. And indeed they are, and a turning point in the letter. Another uh, theologian calls them God's great nevertheless in view of man's failure. If we had not studied the first two and a half chapters of Romans very carefully, we would not be in a position to appreciate these words because the change they speak of would seem as no change at all. With no understanding of the past, we cannot appreciate the present. But now, we can. These words, as I said, they, they ought to thrill us. When we look at these first two and a half chapters of Romans and then come to verse 21, we ought to get excited. I mean excited. Because these are words of grace 
of mercy. These are words of salvation. These are words of God's rescue of wretched sinners like us. It's a turning point. The word now indicates that there has been a change in time or in history. Something bad has existed, but now. I think that the contrast between then and now is a very great one for Paul, especially if you know something of his past. Uh, the change between a, a wretched, sad state of affairs and a glorious present state is something that Paul himself had experienced before the event that occurs on the Damascus Road Paul had been an enemy of Jesus Christ and of his followers. Luke says that he was breathing out slaughter. A very, very strong word. Breathing out slaughter against the church. Uh, Paul will later tell us that he was a learned scholar, but in effect he was ignorant of God, and he was opposed to him. And on the Damascus Road... Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, appeared to Paul, revealed himself as the Son of God and the one that Paul was persecuting. And in that moment, the scales fell from his eyes. The truth of heaven broke upon his darkened heart, flooded it with new life, and turned him from his pride and prejudice and persecution to a new life of serving Christ to become the great apostle who will write half of the New Testament. Like the blind man in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed, Paul could say, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul puts the change in theological Language, but with precisely that emphasis. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I wonder, if we search our hearts, do we really count everything as loss as compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Someday it will come our turn to die. And when that happens, the only thing that will matter is whether or not you know Jesus Christ. Nothing else will matter. Your bank account, your property, your friends, your education, nothing will matter except do you know Jesus Christ. Meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus in the midst of a campaign to arrest and kill believers, made all the difference 
and life and death for the Apostle Paul. He could say honestly, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then think of the tremendous provision that is made here. I think Paul is speaking uh, of this great temporal and historical change not so much as what occurred to him personally, although I believe, as I said, that is present, but as something that God has done to provide salvation for the human race. If God had not done this, our present condition and future prospects would be bleak. They would only be what we have discovered so far from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, as none who seek for God as those who are worthless, as those who have not sought in any way to know or to understand God. We would be under the wrath of God in spiritual and moral decline and without any possibility of any saving help by our human righteousness. We would be, as Paul said of the Ephesians, in their unregenerate state without hope and without God in the world but now things are different I have to confess to you something I'm, I'm by nature not extremely emotional you know most of you won't get this reference but I didn't cry when old Yeller died okay uh, I, I, don't, I don't cry much at all but this week this week in my study looking at this verse of scripture Looking at these words, uh, uh, let me tell you something. My, my dear friend and retired pastor at Woodward Avenue, Wayne Fritz, would have thought I'd turned into a raving Pentecostal because these words are that glorious. They are that glorious. We have hope because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's changed everything. We can say, but now. I want to I look at a couple of areas that that has changed. In uh, the matter, first of all, the one most obvious as to wrath and righteousness. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's clearly making a contrast between that and the declaration that he made in chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Before the wrath of God was being revealed against us, now the righteousness of God has been made known to us. If we do not understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are under God's wrath, that we are destined for an eternity of judgment, of condemnation, then we can hardly appreciate the greatness of what God has accomplished for us in the work of Christ's atonement. People in our day generally think that they're on great terms with God. Or, if not great terms, he might be a little bit peeved at them. You know, nothing serious. 
I mean, but he might be a, a little bit upset, and in any case, he'll get over it. That is not the truth. On the contrary, the case as Paul presents it in the first chapter of Romans is that we have rejected God, and we suppress the truth about him in spite of the fact that God has revealed it to us. God is already, Paul says, in the process of unleashing his wrath. And he has given us up to the consequences of our sin. Paul said there's every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Men are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways to do evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's a scathing condemnation. And that is an expression of what happens to the human race when God displays his wrath by abandoning us to our own evil devices by just giving us enough rope to hang ourselves for all of eternity. Listen, something that you need to understand, people ask the question, are you saved? I usually want to ask, as Dr. R.C. Sproul used to ask, from what? If someone asks me, are you saved? I say, from what? What do I need to be saved from? Do you know what you need to be saved from? God. You need to be saved from God, from his wrath. God is a holy God, and his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. So I ask you, have you been saved from God? Has the righteousness of Christ been imputed to you by faith? That is the only way we can escape captivity to sin it is the truth that not only not only is man unwilling to come to God because of sin and the fall he's unable to come to God that's what makes grace so amazing it is not just that grace makes me willing grace makes me able because without grace I would not even be able but now Paul says, in place of wrath, the righteousness of God has been made known. The only way of salvation from the wrath of God is this righteousness from God that is to be received by faith alone. It's the only way. But thank God it is a way, the way. Then there is a contrast between condemnation and justification that's evident from the continuation of Romans 3 Paul says there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace not only here that we see that truth though later on in Romans chapter 8 he will say therefore there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. Again, 
most people don't see themselves as being under condemnation. Obviously because the sentence has not been fully, fully executed. I said the wrath of God. Paul says the wrath of God is presently being poured out on mankind. He's given them up to all of these things. But they don't see that. They're going along, living their lives, doing whatever they want. They see themselves as Invictus, you know, the, the determiner of their own fate, the captain of their own soul. They do it their way. I said last week that funeral song, I, I did it my way. That's the theme song of most people in the world today. And yet they are under condemnation. They are right now under condemnation. And eventually will come into eternal condemnation. Oh, now, Brother Bob, you know, Paul was something of a, you know, overachiever. You know, that, that, that's, that, that, you know, Jesus didn't say anything like that. Really? What about in John 3 where Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world con to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Those who have not believed are condemned already. They are under the wrath of God. The words of Jesus in John 3, very close parallel to what Paul says about the wrath of God in Romans. Already under wrath. And then there's a contrast between bondage and freedom. Sin not only brings us under God's just wrath and condemnation, but it enslaves us so that we cannot live as God intended us to live. And yet things can be different. Romans chapter 7 verse 6 Paul uses these two important words again. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been re released from the law so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Very important. We'll look at that in some detail later. But the chief point is that although apart from Christ we are under the law but unable to keep it since we are bound to sin, when we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, He delivers us from our bondage, enables us to live holy lives. Paul's already said that earlier in, in Romans 6 where he says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. The final contrast is between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul expresses that again when he sums it up in writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul never forgot that although Jews need Christ just as much as the Gentiles need him, for no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, can be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews of Paul's day had some great spiritual advantages. 
that the non-Jews did not possess. The adoption as sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Gentiles were cut off from these things. But now they have been brought near. So that Paul will say in, again in the book of Ephesians, Consequently, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And although, as I said, this, this is something new in terms of a believer's relationship to Christ, in terms of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and yet there is another sense that it is not new at all. It is an expression of the divine plan because Paul says that the law and the prophets testify to it. It is new in a historical sense, but as a way of salvation, it has always existed in the mind of God. In 2 Timothy, Paul explicitly says that, where he says this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. Paul makes this same point in Romans 3.21 by saying, this righteousness is from God that is something although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament. So where... And in what ways does the Old Testament, Old Testament testify that the grace that has come into the world is through Jesus Christ? And you can answer that question very easily. Go back to the book of Genesis. After the fall, God came to Adam and Eve after their rebellion, the eating of the forbidden tree. And he passed a judgment on them and cursed the serpent who had brought the temptation and punishing Adam and Eve for yielding to it. But then, in the middle of that stern and frightening dialogue, God, speaking to the serpent, says this, And I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and, he, and you will strike his heel. That speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ. Theologians call that the proto-evangelum, the first mention of the evangel, the first mention of the euangelion, the gospel. And God says plainly that Satan will strike Christ. He will strike his heel, but Christ will crush his head. At the cross, he destroyed the power of Satan. No longer can Satan bind men and women in sin without any hope of deliverance where he has made atonement possible. Adam and Eve believed that prophecy. They looked forward to it and they were saved by faith through grace. Further on in Genesis, you find Abraham, a man whom God says all the peoples will, of the earth will be blessed through you. Then we come to that great chapter where God commands Abraham to take his son, Isaac, sacrifice him on, a, on an altar. There, after God stops him, 
He tells Abraham that it will be his offspring through which the blessing will come. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that that word is singular. Not all of the descendants of Abraham, not all of the Jewish race, but just one man, Jesus Christ. He will be the one that God sacrifices. He will be the one who will die on that same mountain where Abraham took Isaac and God spared him. And Abraham believed that. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. When did he see it? On the mountain. There. He had the gospel preached to him beforehand. The ceremonial law in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every, every item of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple points to Jesus Christ. Every one of them points to him and to his work. In the Psalms, we have the great words about Jesus. Psalm 16 prophesies the Lord's resurrection when it says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your Holy One see decay. It's quoted by Peter at Pentecost and Paul before the Gentiles at Pisidian Antioch. Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion. The Lord quoted the opening lines of this prophecy while hanging on the cross. In addition, we have the testimony of the Old Testament prophets, so many of them. One most obvious to us is in the suffering servant passages of Isaiah 53. The important thing is not so much whether you understand or even know of these Old Testament prophecies, but whether or not the truth of which they speak is a reality for you. You may not know a great deal of theology. You may not understand justification, propitiation, and redemption. I will tell you, if you're listening in the next few weeks, you'll be able to understand it because we're going to talk about it. We're going to go through these verses from 21 through 31 in some detail. See, you thought we was already finished with chapter 3, didn't you? <laughs> some of you didn't think that. Listen, I don't get another shot at the book of Romans. I'll be, I'll be dead soon. I don't get but this one shot. I'm taking my time. And we're going to understand these great words that are here in this. You may not know those words, but you know your past life. You know your sins. You know what kind of person that you are. Can you say, that, can you say everything that Paul talks about in Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, that's true of me. But now, <laughs> but now, I have been saved. I think one way that you can test whether or not you are a believer is what words like this mean to you. Do they bring you joy? Do you see that you were a vile, wretched sinner? But now. We're going to 
We're going to stand before we do the announcements and sing a hymn of affirmation to affirm this.